Hi, listeners. Before we begin the last episodes of the season, I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to Season 1 of Ed Infinitum. This podcast has been a lot of fun to make, and it's also been a lot of work. It takes time to research and write scripts, to record and edit, all that stuff. Which is why I also want to take a moment to ask that, if you've enjoyed the fruits of my labors, please go to www.ed-infinitum.com and make a donation to support us. I never envisioned Ed Infinitum as a profit engine. Really, I'm mainly looking to recoup what I've spent on podcast hosting fees and equipment purchases, and anything else would be icing on the cake. Ed Infinitum is a labor of love, but if it's a labor of love that never brings in any income, I'm afraid it's going to lose out to those labors which do. Whether it's a one-time donation or becoming a regular patron, your financial support will enable me to make season two, and who knows how many seasons after that. Again, the website is www.ed-infinitum.com. Click on support the show at the top of the page. Okay, pitch over. On with the season finale. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 1, Episode 13, The Insane Secret History of the SATs, Part 2, or How a Bunch of White Guys from Privileged Backgrounds Tried to Save America from Even Richer White Guys from Privileged Backgrounds, and after a long story including Nazis, Communists, and Hot Dogs, got surprised when things ended up taking an ironic turn. In our last episode, Part 1, we covered the Privileged White Guys and Nazis part. Basically, during the Great Depression, the president of Harvard, James Bryant Conant, and a dean, Henry Chauncey, were fed up with the fact that America's most elite colleges were not really institutes of higher learning, but more like party schools for rich kids to play around in before going on to formally run the country. Given that the country was, well, kind of run into the ground at the time, stock market crash, 25% unemployment, the Dust Bowl, that sort of thing, they thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if college was a place for smart people to actually learn important stuff that could help the nation? And if they were ever going to make that happen, they would need to find those smart people wherever they were, even if they were poor, rural, from unheard of families. As long as they were, of course, white and male. Come on, these guys weren't exactly progressives. In fact, Conant and Chauncey trafficked in some pretty downright racist ideas, specifically eugenics, the idea that through testing you could identify and then selectively breed superior people. Codent and Chauncey didn't go as far as the breeding part, but they really fell in love with the testing part, and teamed up with a Princeton professor named Carl Brigham to create and refine the Scholastic Aptitude Test, or SAT. There was only one small problem. Brigham himself discovered that the SAT didn't, in fact, test aptitude, but rather depended on all sorts of cultural knowledge, tennis, for example, and therefore rewarded that knowledge differentially, even in the questions that seemed to be objective. The very means by which Conant and Chauncey were seeking to turn colleges into meritocracies, Brigham warned, were actually just perpetuating the divisions between the rich elites and everyone else. And isn't it ironic? Yes, unlike Alanis Morissette, Carl Brigham knew exactly what irony was, and he could recognize it when he saw it. He even publishes an essay called A Study of Error, which is basically him saying, Guys, guys, I was wrong! Hey, guys? It was too late. The genie was out of the bottle, especially since the first Scantron-style mechanical grading machines had just been invented. And despite Brigham quitting the whole show, Conant and Chauncey were off and running, convincing a whole lot of colleges to adopt the SAT as a way of evaluating the intellectual capabilities of applicants. 
although for the time being just the handful of scholarship applicants. Just a couple of years after Brigham dies, Conant forms ETS, the Educational Testing Service, an organization whose purpose was to consolidate and distribute the SATs. Before his death, Brigham was worried that such an organization would face an inherent conflict of interest, ensuring the accuracy of the test versus promoting and cheerleading the test. But there was no stopping Conant now, and here's where we pick up the story again. We've made it to the 1940s, and Conant is writing books and speaking publicly all over the nation, trying to get more and more schools to adopt the SAT. In his writings, he said his goal was to save America from a, quote, hereditary aristocracy, unquote, that was antithetical to the American democratic principle. Here's another quote for you. A new type of social instrument is needed as the means of salvation of the classlessness of the nation, a means of recapturing social flexibility, of approximating more nearly the American ideal, end quote. Keep an eye on that word classlessness. He's not talking about burping at the dinner table. He's talking about that the way that Lenin and Marx talked about that. In the early 1940s, he starts talking about, quote, wielding the axe against the root of inherited privilege, unquote, and goes on to publicly suggest the confiscation of all inherited property every generation. The alternative, he wrote, is to have what he called a caste system. He published an essay in The Atlantic entitled Wanted American Radicals, in which he wrote passages like the following. And let me make sure we have the proper soundtrack for this. Quote, Rather, in this country, we must invoke our radical ancestors and with their spirit attack the problem of a stratified society, highly mechanized and forced to continue along the road of mass production. Without further apologies, therefore, I recommend the attention of all who are interested in preserving freedom, the need for the American radical, the missing political link between the past and future of this great democratic land. End quote. Wow. I mean, this guy made Bernie Sanders look conservative. But after the war ended, he did something of an about-face. Conant had had a front-row seat, literally, at the Trinity nuclear testing site when the first atomic bomb was exploded. And if that didn't show you how tight he was with the U.S. government, he was actually seriously considered for the position of High Commissioner for Allied-Occupied Germany. He wound up settling for being the United States' first ambassador to West Germany after the Berlin Wall went up. And with that wall, so too rose the Red Scare in America. And boy, did Conant suddenly hop on that bandwagon. No more calls for confiscating private property from him. Instead, he started advocating for a ban on hiring any teachers who were communists, and spoke out against the use of the Fifth Amendment by people who had been hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, I did read a biography of Conant by James Hersberg, which argues that Conant only did this as, quote, a pragmatic, expedient move that would put the educational establishment in a much better position to defend left-wing but non-communist teachers, end quote. Okay, maybe. Conant also opposed the racial integration of schools, chastising those who were, to use his words, agitating for busing to, quote, accept de facto segregated schools as a consequence of a present housing situation and to work for the improvement of slum schools, end quote. Now, Brown versus the Board of Education had, back in 1954, clearly established that it wasn't just a matter of funding, that even in a hypothetical, although never actually seen, situation where white and black schools were equally well-resourced, the African-American students, by very dint of their separation, would still suffer lasting psychological harm and messages of inferiority. Conan's defenders say, once again, this was just another example of what was simply Conan's pragmatism. 
And to be fair, toward the end of his life, he did walk back some of his more reactionary positions. He died in 1978, and in his last letter to the Harvard community, he urged the university to, quote, maintain the traditions of academic freedom and tolerance for heresy, end quote. Of course, this document was also something he insisted not be opened until 30 years after his death. So, wow, bit of a tangent there. But with Conant off watching bombs explode and chilling in Germany and hunting communists and visiting so-called slum schools, that left Henry Chauncey in charge of ETS and the SAT project. Remember, this is an episode about the origins of the SAT? Well, following in Conant's footsteps proves to be very difficult for Chauncey. Only a few schools are willing to adopt the SAT at this stage, and even then only for select demographics of students, primarily scholarship students. But then two developments after the war changed the face of American education. Number one, the GI Bill brings thousands of more students to college who could never have afforded it before. And number two, the USSR's launch of Sputnik, I'm too lazy to pull out that recording of the Soviet national anthem again, sorry, begins a national push to get as many Americans educated as possible in order to compete with the Russians. The pressure was rising on colleges and universities to produce smart, capable scientists and mathematicians and ETS leaped in with the SAT as a means to select the very best applicants. One by one, all of the Ivy League colleges, sometimes over the protests of wealthy alumni seeking easy paths for their kids, became high-powered academic institutions. Chauncey always saw the SAT as just the first step towards a full spectrum of testing. His dream was actually a, quote, census of all abilities, unquote. For a while, he teamed up with Isabel Myers, author of the Myers-Briggs Personality Test, in an attempt to do this. Chauncey, however, considered her personality test to be too unreliable, too close to pseudoscience. And it's kind of considered that way today as well. But you're certainly welcome to Google Myers-Briggs Personality Test and take it yourself. Who knows? Maybe it will accurately describe your personality to a T. Little known fun fact about Isabel Myers, she actually had a small side career as a murder mystery novelist. Her two novels, Murder Yet to Come and Give Me Death, apparently apply her ideas about personality types to a whodunit. I've never read either. You're welcome to do so. All I really know is that at one point in one of the books, a Southern family commits suicide one by one after learning they may have, quote, Negro blood, unquote. So, yeah, you can't throw a rock in this episode without hitting some racism. Sorry. By all accounts, Chauncey and Myers had a very contentious working relationship. I don't think it was about the racism as much as the statistical reliability or lack thereof of her test, but in any case, that relationship eventually dissolved. The next place Chauncey turned for collaboration was with the now famous Rorschach inkblot tests, but those didn't really pan out for him either. At last, ETS developed a brand new exam called the Test of Developed Ability, or TDA, which apparently tested a much fuller range of student capacities, as well as sought to help students identify areas of study that they might be interested in. It represented part of a shift, according to historian Norbert Elliott, towards the kind of test that would, quote, measure the depth of understanding and the ability to apply knowledge of principles to solutions and problems, to look at the factors that make for success in a particular subject field, and the manner of development of these factors. Unquote. I've never taken the TDA, but by all accounts, it's a test that's much more comprehensive and maybe a little more valid and accurate than the SAT. It was also, apparently, much more expensive than the SAT. I guess you get what you pay for. And took six hours to administer. So, yeah, you can see how colleges already sold in the SAT because of convenience and low cost weren't exactly chomping at the bit to buy this. Plus, ETS now had a competitor. 
E.F. Lindquist, a Midwestern scientist who saw Chauncey as an out-of-touch elite Northeasterner, and started American College Testing, the company that produced, and still produces, the ACT exam. Lindquist was a self-identified Iowa farm boy who started off his academic career studying quantum physics, then decided that achievement testing was the place he would put his effort and energy. Primarily, it seemed, because he judged so many of them to be so inaccurate. He looked at things like the SAT and said, gosh darn it, I can do better than that. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole which is better, the SAT or the ACT debate, although certainly a quick Google search will give you all of the arguments you'd like on both sides. What I will say is that Lindquist was a pretty prolific guy when it came to designing tests. He designed the Iowa Test of Basic Skills, which is still used today in elementary and middle schools. And he was also on the committee that developed the GED. He also invented some famous statistical methodology that goes way over my head, so I'm not even going to try and describe it, as well as being responsible for something in Iowa called the Brain Derby. It apparently was something of a marathon to see how many tests you could score in a given time. Hey, whatever floats your boat. So thanks to Lindquist, ETS was now in a fight for its own survival. So as of the 1960s, they shelved their plans for the test of developed ability and threw all their weight behind the SAT. Now I said a moment ago that I wasn't going to get into the whole SAT versus ACT fight, and I won't. And part of the reason I won't is that the SAT and the ACT operate under fundamentally different principles. The SAT claims to be a test of aptitude, of so-called pure academic ability, while the ACT claimed to test achievement in specific subject areas. The SAT's purpose was to determine college admission. The ACT could be used that way, and eventually was, but Lindquist designed it to help students find out what subject areas they wanted to study. Ironically, just like Chauncey dreamed for the TDA. The SATs thus appealed to highly selective Ivy League colleges, while the ACT was increasingly adopted by Midwestern land-grant colleges that served a much broader student population. And again, thanks in large part to the GI Bill, those colleges' ranks were getting filled. So the great race was on. ETS and the ACT rushed to claim colleges as if they were territories. By the late 1960s, nearly every college in the country had adopted one or the other as a standardized admissions test. The SAT, then as now, predominated in the coastal colleges, east and west, while America's heartland was ACT territory. ETS worked feverishly to get colleges and high schools across the country to embrace the SAT, and they were quite successful. You could say that ETS won the war, since far more students take the SAT than the ACT even today. But as any political candidate can tell you, being the front-runner makes you the biggest target for criticism. It wasn't even just criticism from the Carl Brigham types who declaimed the SAT as a bogus test of so-called ability. Some prominent public figures, including at one point Ralph Nader, accused ETS of being a monopoly, of operating without any accountability or outside oversight, and, most glaring of all, not really being a nonprofit. If you do a Google image search on their swanky office complex and campus, Wow, it is kind of hard to believe. The consumer rights organization, Americans for Educational Testing Reform, came after the College Board for allegedly violating its nonprofit status through excessive profits and exorbitant executive compensation. In 2009, 19 of its executives made more than $300,000 per year, with the CEO earning $1.3 million, including deferred compensation. So yeah, there's money in those bubble tests. But of course, the biggest challenges were indeed directed at the SAT's validity. 
Studies were and remain mixed about how well the SATs correlate with future grades in college. Most of the things I've read say somewhere between 10 to 20 percent. But since students go to different colleges with different levels of difficulty in grading, you don't have a universal way of comparing apples to apples. Significant gaps exist between the SAT scores of white and African-American students. So either that means that, as the eugenicists were saying, African-Americans are somehow less inherently smart, give me a break, or Carl Brigham's explanation that the test doesn't accurately measure students' inherent ability in isolation, but rather in cultural context, in this case, in the culture of the test designers. There also remain high correlations between family income level and wealth and SAT scores. Despite Chauncey and Conan's whole purpose, wealthy people still have an advantage on the SATs. How much of an advantage? On every test section, an increase of about $20,000 in income is associated with an average score boost of over 12 points. If the SAT was really a test of inherent ability, then the extra resources that wealth brings wouldn't affect your score. This should not have been news to anyone at ETS. Way back in the 1930s, the massive problems with validity and reliability in the SATs were exposed to the world by, of all people, a hot dog vendor. His name was Stanley, and hot dog vending had not been his intended career path. In 1939, Stanley had graduated from City College of New York, Phi Beta Kappa and second in his class, with dreams of becoming a doctor. Those dreams were dashed when he was rejected from all five New York City area medical schools because of ethnic quotas for Jewish students. They had already admitted enough Jews, apparently, and didn't want to take one more. Years later, in his autobiography, Stanley would say that this was the beginning of his interest in standardized testing. He wondered if it might one day provide a more objective and less prejudiced way of assessing student admission into colleges. Naturally, that meant he would have to take a look at how the SAT operated. And that wouldn't be easy. ETS kept the SAT's secrets locked tightly under wraps. Stanley, who had every reason to resent ethnically privileged folks like Chauncey and Conant, probably had no qualms about a little bit of industrial espionage. He wound up devising a scheme where he would give student test takers free hot dogs if they returned back to him after taking the SAT having memorized one and only one question. This method allowed him to reconstruct entire tests and to see patterns in them. Patterns that he would then offer to teach people about to take the SAT, for a fee. And that was how the very first test prep company was started, by Stanley Kaplan. Remember, if the SAT were really a test of inherent ability, there wouldn't be any way to prep for it. But test prep did enable students to raise their scores. Kaplan claimed by 100 points, although the Federal Trade Commission, in the process of a lawsuit against him, determined that actually it was only an average of 25 points. Still. Despite all the hue and cry that ETS raised that Kaplan was allowing students to cheat on their tests, his method of cheating shouldn't have been possible if the tests really did what ETS claimed they did. Eventually, ETS turned around on their opinion of test prep. Maybe something about it being a $4 billion business these days had something to do with that. Nowadays, the ranks of test prep companies like Kaplan and the Princeton Review have been joined by ETS themselves who now sell their own line of test preparation materials. In 1983, the College Board even asked Stanley Kaplan to speak at its annual conference. Eventually, after a little bit of litigation, ETS finally admitted in 1990 that the SAT does not measure natural aptitude, and changed the name of the test from Scholastic Aptitude Test to Scholastic Assessment Test, although someone at ETS must have realized that the name Scholastic 
test of testing sounded more than a little silly, and today the entire acronym has been dropped. The test is simply named the SAT. It no longer stands for anything. These days, the justification for the SAT is, is murky. With every passing year, more and more schools relinquish their attachment to it. Last year alone, 50 colleges and universities that awarded bachelor's degrees announced they were dropping the admissions requirement for an SAT or ACT score. That apparently brings the number of accredited schools to have done so to 1,050, according to FairTest. But 60% of colleges and universities still do employ the SAT, despite its well-publicized flaws. The SATs don't measure native intelligence, if there even is such a thing. No one's arguing that anymore these days. But don't they measure something? After all, it's not that the SATs are entirely full of questions about tennis and yachting, of course, and such obviously slanted questions have been mostly eliminated by the various rounds of revisions ETS has undertaken over the years. Yes, the reading and writing section still holds students accountable for the dialect of English spoken by society's most privileged, but it's still the English they learn in schools. And there are plenty of straightforward math questions. So are the SAT's opponents making too much of a big deal about cultural bias? I think a better question to ask is, do the SATs measure anything about your propensity for academic achievement? As mentioned earlier, the research is very mixed. Most studies find that your SAT scores do predict college success to an extent. The relationship isn't particularly strong, which means that if you have high SAT scores, you're only slightly more likely to have higher grades in college than someone who has lower scores than you, provided that your grades in high school are more or less similar. And research shows a similar relationship between SAT scores and high school grades. Let's talk about high school grades for a minute, though. Remember, the entire reason why Chauncey and Conant wanted to adopt a standardized test for college admissions was because GPA was unreliable. Thanks to the vast differences in how grading works from school to school or even from teacher to teacher in America, it's impossible to compare apples to apples when it comes to grade point average. But the weird thing is, a lot of research shows, most recently a 2018 study by the Urban Institute, that despite all of this variation, a student's GPA is still a much better predictor of their college grades and likelihood to complete college than either their SAT or their ACT score. The author's theory in that study is that regardless of the nuances, a student's GPA usually captures whether a student consistently attends class and completes her assignments on time, and those habits certainly aid you in college. What about your future earnings post-college? Again, we're in murky territory, research-wise. Several studies demonstrate a positive correlation between high SAT scores and future income, but graduates of Ivy League colleges in general earn higher income, and they have higher SAT score cutoffs for admission. And they also tend to enroll wealthier students, who may have access to all sorts of connections to get high-paying jobs. Not to mention how, back in high school, wealthier students had better access to test prep services when preparing for the SAT. In short, it's really hard to know which cart is pulling which horse. Despite the murky picture, many colleges are still willing to put their faith in the SAT as some sort of indicator of academic prowess. Others all but admit that the SAT is flawed, but they need something to help them winnow down the large applicant pools. And doing well on the SAT shows that a student is capable of, well, something. Henry Chauncey died in 2002. The dream that he and Conant had of a test that would level the playing field was something of a failure. Wealthy people, either by dint of the culture they grew up in, which the tests, however unintentionally, catered to, or by their ability to afford test preparation classes, still had an unfair edge when it came to getting into colleges. Furthermore, even when capable but less well-off students did go to college, they often didn't choose public leadership service afterwards, as Chauncey and Conant had hoped. 
Public sector service jobs don't pay very well after all, and if you're going to college and racking up all that debt, many people decide to pursue higher-paying careers in the private sector. After all, why else do they go to college, if not to rise in society? And, often, they rise not as the political leaders that Chauncey and Conant envisioned, but what Nicholas Lemon calls the Mandarin class, the class of technical and bureaucratic professionals, who constitute a kind of sub-elite of the next generation. If you're curious about this part of the story, do check out Nicholas Lemon's The Big Test, which I've drawn on extensively for these past two episodes. The extreme capsule version of his argument is that these mandarins become sort of the next generation of wealthy people, still below that old guard money, but wealthy enough to constitute a kind of elite, and their children, raised in well-off households, will in turn do better on the SATs than their counterparts from poorer backgrounds. Lemon argues that Conant and Chauncey did create a new elite, and the SAT played a big role in transforming the way that class and wealth are distributed in the USA, just not the way they intended. And this new elite and their children are very resistant to being called an aristocracy. After all, they can say, we earned our place at the top. We're in power because we're smart. Just look at our SAT scores. For the latest chapter in this story, we can look back to last May, when The Atlantic published a fascinating report by Sidney Fissel about how some elite colleges are now experimenting with coupling the SAT with something called an adversity scale, basically an attempt to scientifically assess all of the factors that create a degree of disadvantage that a student has faced. Crime rate in their neighborhood, rigor of their high school curriculum, education level of their parents. In short, all of the things in a student's environment beyond their control. And then to look at their scores in the context of the obstacles they've had to overcome. Part of the motivation for this is, because of legal challenges to using race for purposes of admissions, colleges are instead examining various proxies for race in an attempt to bring in a more diverse student body. It's only a two-year-old project, and the jury's still out on its results, but I find it fascinating that the goal of the college board, apparently, is still the same one that Chauncey and Codent had way back in the Great Depression, to expand the ranks of the next generation of highly educated leaders beyond just the wealthy white elite who traditionally populate colleges and universities do as much to their heritage as to their achievements. The irony is that, this time, at least some part of the system they're trying to combat was created and perpetuated by the very invention they came up with the last time they tried to tackle this problem. That's all the time we have for this season. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. Creating Season 1's 14 episodes has been exhausting, but if you learned something, were entertained, or both, then it's all been worth it. I hope to have Season 2 up and running sometime this summer, when we'll return to our usual bi-weekly release schedule. If that plan changes, I'll be sure to post and let you all know. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast, and if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Enjoy your vacation from this podcast, and please stay healthy and safe out there. Bye bye.